wherever and whenever you may be. And welcome to episode 10 of the Fade to Black podcast. We made it to double digits, everyone. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a mom woman. I'm Clarice Lockery. And I'm Hannah Flint. And this week, we're telling you to get over here as we take a look at the Mortal Kombat reboot. Uh, we sat up with family drama Cowboys from Anna Kerrigan, who Clarice spoke to on the podcast last week. Uh, an immigrant fast food delivery driver is on the hunt for his moped in The Bike Thief, and there's super family dysfunction on display in Netflix's Jupiter's Legacy. Plus, for this week's hot take, we debate whether a black Clark Kent is the best way forward in Warner Brothers DC cinematic universe. But before all of that, uh, I'm going to get ahead of the game here because one of our number, Miss Hannah Inez Flint, by the time you're listening to this, she would have had her birthday. Uh, so, in the spirit of that, Hannah, happy birthday to you. Yeah. Happy birthday to yeah. you. Happy birthday. Yeah. Can you believe it? 21. Can you believe it, guys? 21. 21. Honestly, I've achieved so much, so much in such a short space of time. No, I'll be, um, I'll be, uh, I'll be 33. So I can definitely, I've still got time for getting on one of those, like, 40 under 40. (laughs) Come on, this is my decade. (laughs) Um, But yeah, no, it's, um, it's weird. It's really weird um, having, this is my second birthday in lockdown. Um, Oh man. uh, But this, it's it's annoying because we're recording this on a Friday. My birthday's on the Saturday and I was all like, yeah, Saturday, I'll have like a picnic in the, in in the park and have people around. And then I looked at the weather, it's like, it's 99% gonna rain everywhere like all day and I was like oh wait so I've had to have it kind of like cancel my plans do something little small today have a little lunch tomorrow so yeah so I'm gonna spread my birthday out this weekend but thank you guys I really appreciate the birthday messages but I feel like I've got a present for you uh mom because uh what I this morning I went I did an interview that was in like Kensington and I walked past like um I think the Victorian Albert Hall. And lo and behold, what did I see shooting at this location? Ted Lasso. Oh, <laughs> yes! We, I, yes! was, I was like, is that Jason Sudeikis? <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, Ted Lasso at Victorian Albert Hall. So they're obviously doing some that scenes is... for the next series. You've heard it here first, guys. <laughs> that is amazing. Scoop. Oh, that has made my day. <laughs> there you go. No, but, yeah. So I best watch it. <laughs> so I get the reference. Yes, you have to get on. Clarice, have you seen any celebrities around town this week? I uh, no. Well, I not with my own eyes, but uh, so I live in Brighton. For anyone who doesn't know, and Harry Styles has been hanging around my block a lot. I just walked hey. past the cafe around the corner, and they're setting up to shoot something. Uh, they're doing, it's called My Policeman, so it's him and Emma Corrin. Something to do with the 50s. Yeah, but also I find it slightly awkward. It's like, dude, My Policeman, this time of year? Are we, we yeah. Do we want a police-themed love story? Also, it's like 50s policeman, so he's walking around in that really unflattering like Bobby helmet. It's oh, like... yeah. The symbol of like retro racism. Yeah. It's not oh. a great look. But you know, I'll I'll check back in if I see if I see Harry 
Uh, I'll let you guys know. He's just like I a really round. want <laughs> you to shout at him. A cab. <laughs> <laughs> just imagine. <laughs> I don't. Oh, I like Harry Styles. I'm sure. Oh no, he's precious. He'll, he'll give an explanation when the movie comes. Out. <laughs> well, I've met him twice in in social. Not my. So I've been at these like uh, event. I suppose a party thing like this art. What's it? Art freeze? Is that what freeze or whatever? And he was there, and he was really nice. And I saw him offer to take photos of two women there, and I'm like, oh, that's oh, you're annoying. You're actually nice. <laughs> it's like you know, you're like, oh god, you come across as a really nice person, and like you are. Oh, okay, I'm guess guess I'm gonna have. I'm forced to stand. Like that's it now. That's official. We are forced to stand. <laughs> Yeah, I'm reluctantly standing. Yeah, Um, I guess my only other thing I'd like to add, I just, I just want a real lightsaber. I'm excited about that. So, (laughs) oh my god, yes! Yes. No, I saw that. I'm like, literally, I watched that clip about ten times, wondering how did they do it. I don't know. It's just a real lightsaber. I don't (laughs) understand. Have they priced that yet? Um, oh, the price rate. I think it's unavailable to purchase. One million pounds. They're they're using it in the for the actors on the Galactic Star Cruiser at the moment. So it's not going to be available for purchase for probably like a decade. Uh, oh, wow. But I would also like to go to the Galactic Star Cruiser because you just go and you're in Star Wars for three days and that's it and that's the trip. Disney, if you're listening to this, please be sure to send tickets to Clarice and to Hannah and the Mom Woman as well. We we would also like to go. Yeah, we'll right post here? the shit out of it. <laughs> <laughs> we could do a podcast live from yeah. the, the Galaxy's Edge. You know, we got to do that, didn't we, Clarice? We got in the Millennium Falcon many moons ago. Yeah, and I cried in front of everyone and it was yeah, really embarrassing. <laughs> he was such a nerd, guys. <laughs> It's fine. Oh, it was so adorable. It's fine. I'm not. I'm not jealous at all. It's fine. Keep talking about Millennium Falcon. It's fine. No. I'm sorry. <laughs> I saw the Millennium Falcon and I just started weeping. It was really embarrassing and I couldn't stop crying. <laughs> <laughs> very. Just... How very Clarice of you. Yeah. We yeah. love you. We love you, little small loving little crying <laughs> guys. I'm thinking, what would I cry about? I think I'd cry if I met. Bruce Springsteen. I think that's when I would like sob and just be like, you're like my dad's favorite singer. Like Aww. that's I would be like if he if 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 anything came out about Bruce Springsteen, that was oh, like the, I, it would devastate me, and I'd really I'd be one of those ones where you're like. I I potentially be like one of those Michael Jackson fans who's like no <laughs> yeah. for a, for a hot minute, <laughs> but like yeah that would sorry I brought it really dark now it's like yeah imagine if Bruce Springsteen <laughs> was like uh, uh. <laughs> the Millennium Falcon's an inanimate object so it can never hurt me <laughs> <laughs> winning. Uh, so before we dive in, I uh, spoke to Alex uh, Sekiranu and Matt Chambers who were the uh, star and director of The Bike Thief, which relocates the Italian classic Bicycle Thieves to present-day London, uh, and it's set over 24 hours, and it follows a Romanian delivery driver who works for a fast food restaurant, but his moped gets stolen, and he must get it back or risk losing his home and livelihood. 
So what you're going to hear first is the trailer for The Bike Thief, and then we're going to go straight into the interview. Enjoy. Follow me. You follow. No bike, no job. No job, no money. No money, no flat. What do I do? Whatever you have to do. Do it for your family. Okay, so joining us on the Fate of Light podcast today are Alex Sakharanu and Matt Chambers, the star and director of The Bike Thief. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me and congratulations on your film as well. Thank you. Yes, thank you. <laughs> First off, I really want to chat about the inspiration uh, for your film, obviously, Vittorio De Sica's Bicycle Thieves, uh, a great classic of Italian neorealism. How early in the writing process did that come in? Um, it came, I think it was pretty much the second step <laughs> into writing the film. Um, my, so the, the initial step was that my uh, partner at the time uh, worked for a charity uh, called Quorum Children's Legal Centre, um, which is a charity that does um, some incredible work with migrant families um, coming into the UK. Um, and so talking to her about, you know, the people that she was dealing with in her day-to-day -day life and, you know, the hardships there, um, kind of became clear that I wanted to try and write something that would help or in some way, you know, shine a, some kind of spotlight onto that. Um, and then the idea of recontextualizing uh, Bicycle Thieves for the modern day or in modern day London uh, suddenly just felt like a really natural idea. Um, it felt like, you know, a really good way of saying, honestly, what, what has changed and, you know, which, uh, which of these struggles are timeless. Yeah, and Alec, did you uh, study Bicycle Thieves at all, or particularly Lamberto Maggiani's performance? Well, uh, no, not really, to be honest. And uh, at that point, when, when I found out that there is a film that is called Bicycles, Bicycle Thieves, I kind of, it was a conscious choice not to see the film prior we start filming it because I didn't want to get anything. And I wanted to be like more uh, specific to this story and this character and this family. And uh, yeah, of course, it's a beautiful film and uh, yeah. But uh, at that point, I didn't want to see it, to be honest. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I only ask because I, I think um, in his performance in that film, there's so much sadness and desperation in his eyes. And I, I feel like your performance definitely shares an element of that as well, because obviously for so much of it, you're wearing the helmet. And so I, I wondered as an actor, you know, how do you overcome that, that physical limitation where you, you only kind of have part of your tools available to you well it, it's there if you don't think about it I, I mean it seemed like it was a challenge but once I uh, we start to film it the environment started to affect me because it was really wet and damp and I had the costume and uh, it was a very collaborative way of choosing the clothes that the rider was wearing and uh, uh, once you have all that on, I mean, and, and you let the environment change you, I mean, it's there. It's, uh, I, I didn't think uh, about, I don't know, now it's only the eyes, do more with the eyes, because that, that might be, uh, yeah, uh, a tricky road to go on. So, uh, yeah, I just try to concentrate on the situation and uh, not think about it that much. 
And it's it's so interesting that your character is just called the writer because I I know that often actors will you know have a whole biography for their character. I mean, did you did you have that, or were you only working with the tools that were were in the script? Well, of course, we worked and uh, tried to build the background of this family and the character and the whole background and where they came from, and uh, we went through that that whole process we kind of all insisted to do that and uh, that's why we had our meetings in which we tried to uh, uh, make the dialogue uh, very specific to our Romanian family and uh, Matt was very open to, to doing that kind of work and uh, uh, it, uh, I mean we had like very long sessions in which we discussed the story the family and where do they come from? And it was a conscious choice not to uh, give the, this character a name because uh, the kind of uh, anonymity that he's in, is that a word? Did I manage to? Okay, okay. Uh, uh, relevant to the story and to what we're trying to say because this could be the story of any delivery, any people that you pass, bump into the streets. So it's, uh, yeah. It's kind of, uh, we try to give the audience the sense that we're taking a moment to follow this guy and this, and then we go to the other one. So uh, yeah, it was a conscious, conscious choice to do. Yeah, and um, it must be really weird releasing this film now, you know, not to be like, oh, the pandemic, but uh, like the, the the role of the delivery driver today is is so much more vital than it was before where it already was very vital and um it really feels like we're not having many conversations about the lack of economic stability that these workers have and the fact that a man's life can be ruined by the theft of his bike and matt i i wondered what kind of conversation you hope that people will have after watching this film I mean, principally one of empathy. Um, you know, that, that was our main, our main hope, you know, before, <laughs> before the pandemic, our main hope was to just, you know, think more carefully about the person who's delivering your Amazon package or your delivery. Um, and now, obviously, post-pandemic, where we've become so aware of not only the precariousness of, of that sort of lifestyle, but of kind of any kind of lifestyle, it's a much broader just question of let's within, especially obviously it's it's a city film and within these cities, let's just have empathy for each other. And it's about uh, connection and, and yeah, it's, I mean, that's the pertinence of it, I suppose. Yeah, it, it the fact that you brought up the idea, this is a, a city film. And I think that is kind of another thing it, it shares with Bicycle Thieves is this idea of, I'm very interested in the idea of film as like cartography, the idea that you can, I think you do such a great job of mapping out London. I, I wondered what your approach was, was just in terms of, of just those beautiful shots following the bike through the streets. Um, I mean, that was, <laughs> thank you very much. I mean, that was mostly because we shot the film entirely on location uh, in Kilburn. Um, you know, we had a we had a sort of two mile, three mile stretch of playground that we could have the moped, uh, and we were allowed to follow after the moped. So all of the shots are kind of the same. They're the same sort of circuit that we were allowed to use, and it was just amazing. Kilburn's just the perfect example because you go from you know 
an estate on one street to the next street is these incredible opulent townhouses and you know it turns out yeah in that three mile stretch you get a pretty good snapshot of what London <laughs> looks like today. Yeah and and I I don't know it's so odd to me I've, you I watch so many films set in London as part of my job and uh, you're so used to not seeing very much of it <laughs> because everyone wants to to create this this very small glamorized snapshot of it and so I it, I was really struck by the fact that this film spent so much time in the places that we know <laughs> amazing that's brilliant <laughs> that's yeah. exactly what we were after <laughs> <laughs> And um, it, it's interesting because I, obviously your film never mentions the word Brexit and I was reading the reviews and so many of them did. And uh, I should say, I, I know I don't sound like it, but I am a European immigrant. I'm here on a French passport. And uh, it's so strange that ever since the vote, that's been a thing that has been in the back of my mind constantly. And I wondered if you could talk about either of you that, that moment when his boss talks about the idea of assimilation and how that contrasts with the the reality of, of the writer's world. You want to take that out? Well, uh, it's, it's so interesting when, when we spoken about the family and about the character, uh, we had so many close people, I had so many close people to relate to and to, to, to be inspired uh, uh, in creating this character. Uh, in Romania, there, there is a huge issue, this one of uh, people that are uh, migrating to other parts of the, uh, other, other parts of Europe. And uh, uh, as I said before, I have a lot of friends that in search for a better life for their kids, in fact, not for them, because when they arrive there, they have to do like this underqualified job for them. Some of them are engineers, they, they are uni uh, graduates, they're very well prepared, but they still have to start from bottom. And uh, they have sometimes to do these kind of jobs that just to be able to provide a better future for their kids. And it's in the moment because it's a better, better, uh, I don't know, school, uh, better uh, social security, better healthcare. So, bottom line, it's about being, feeling secure with your family and try to uh, uh, create a secure uh, environment for your kids to grow up. So, in search for that, people are willing to go very far and to sacrifice their adulthood and their lives. So, I that's why I think it's relevant this film these days and uh, as you said uh, now more than ever you think about uh, the delivery guy that is in front of your door because I have a lot of friends actors or uh, people that are working in the industry that started these kind of jobs during pandemic because the industry was quite affected and uh, yeah just uh, it's a film that I don't know at least ask you to uh, uh, be more compassionate, I think. Yeah, bottom line. Absolutely, yeah. And there's this constant tension between, like, the writer. You could see that he just just wants to be a great dad, and he just loves his family, and he wants to be there for him. But that's sort of constantly going up against the demands of his job. And and I wondered, 
when you were working through kind of the psychology of the character, because we see him driven to extremes, I mean, what do you think are the things that pushed him there? Well, it's just the environment and how, how the environment affects you, the way of life, because in that point, he's very dependent about, uh, uh, his, he doesn't have any friends, he doesn't have any tools to work with. He's just a dependent person. So he doesn't really have that many choices. And uh, it's a no-brainer when you have to choose between the uh, wealth of your family and the health of your family and, I don't know, doing something slightly illegal. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, kind of the situation pushes him to do that kind of stuff because it's acceptable. Why not? I mean, people accept that and they are willing to just close their eyes. But yeah, they don't yeah. have to... And people are willing to close their eyes just to quite obvious things because they don't want to know. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's kind of, it's, it's a cycle. I think the film's very good at portraying the idea that, as you said, no, so many people just have no choice. There's just absolutely no choice to it. Um, and and yeah, I, I, I wondered, Matt, if you could talk about sort of the, the tension, that, that tension within the film, uh, the idea that, you you you're so good at holding off for so long that feeling of oh he he's trying so hard you know not to to break the cycle to not become part of that cycle but you know every door is shutting and it's getting to the point where he has he as as you said yeah has absolutely no choice yeah i mean alec and i talked for a very long i mean obviously you know i think it's for a film called the bike thief i think we spend sort of nearly half the time sort of prior to the bike uh being stolen and and that's very intentional because, you know, <laughs> as Alec and I have talked about a few times, like it's, it's not a thriller, it's a drama and it's about this family and, and about this guy specifically. And, you know, he's a remarkably gentle guy and he's, he's uh, <laughs> for want of a better phrase, like he's playing the game and he's a well-behaved guy. and he, he is locked into the routine and he's doing everything he can and to his mind, you know, he has been doing everything he can. And so the idea that he suddenly all, you know, all of a sudden he is being pushed into making life-changing, terrible decisions, potentially. Um, that for me was the, was the great tragedy is, yeah, I would, I wanted, we wanted to see how far, how gentle we could make him initially and how long we could stretch him maintaining that gentleness until finally that snaps. Um, yeah, that was the main tragedy for us, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I have, I have one more question. I, I wanted to ask Matt, I, I know that, I understand that you, you worked on the sets of like some of the biggest films that have been shot in the UK over the past years, uh, Avengers Ultron and Rogue One. And I just wondered, I think our listeners would love to know like what you learned as a filmmaker from those experiences that you could then bring on to The Bike Thief. Um, I mean, you know, I think there, there, are two, there are two things. One is, one is a similarity and, and one is a difference. You know, the first thing is, um, a set is a set and if you can get any set experience whatsoever you know it's the same the people on the set will be the same people and so you know the day-to-day -day practicality is pretty much the same time is the main difference so on 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 a rogue one on a solo you know if you don't make your shots that day that's fine on a movie like ours we shot in 16 days on the you know the the, the last scene it, we were completely rained out and it was just kind of like well 
what are we going to do now? Okay, let's cut this shot, this shot, this shot. And I think, you know, the main difference between a set like that and a set like ours is, you know, an independent low budget movie's natural state is failure. <laughs> like it is the movie falling apart and everybody goes home. Um, on a movie like Rogue One, on a movie like Solo, that train does not stop moving for anyone. Um, so I think <laughs> that's the thing. Yeah, that's really interesting. Thank you so much again for your time and, and congratulations on your film. Thank you. Thank too. you. Aman, what did you think of The Bike Thief? I liked it. I liked it. Um, it's interesting that it took like a good 30 minutes for the bike to be stolen. Spoilers! <laughs> <laughs> it's in the synopsis! It's, it's called The Bike Thief! Honestly, if I get any messages about spoilers for that, <laughs> mad. Um, but yeah, I like how it takes the time to really sketch out this man's life and show him to be a devoted father and devoted husband. Um, it's also specific and universal in showing how this Romanian man and this Romanian family struggle to keep their lives together after this theft. Um, I think the lead performance by Alex Sekunranu is really, really nuanced and helps helps us to helps bring us into that headspace of this character because he's forced to make increasingly tough decisions in trying to figure out what he's going to do and how he's going to, you know, protect his family and all the rest of it. And I, I think that that is sort of where this film lives and I found that to be very effective. On top of all of that, the score by first-time composer Graham Hastings was really, really good too and it added tension and a number of significant points in the film. So, yeah, I, I liked it. Can I just first say... Uh, that this was a very triggering um, watch for me as someone who had their own bike stolen uh, last mm. year. <laughs> so I was definitely like feeling, I felt it deeply, um, what the rider, he's, he doesn't, does he have a, a name in it or is he just kind of nope. called the rider throughout? That, yeah. He's just, he's just, just the rider. rider. Yeah. So um, still deal with the police on that one. Um, waiting to hear back. It's been a while. Um, mm. I could go into the sort of details of the state police stakeout I was on um, trying to get it back. But that's a tale for another podcast <laughs> called wow. The Bike Thief from Hannah <laughs> and Miniseries. No, I'm joking. Um, I, um, I think there's something so understated about this film. It's very quiet, not a lot said, but I think that gives it so much space to allow you to insert yourself and understand where he's going and how he feels. Because, you know, what you get, this is very much talking about the immigrant insecurity, the insecurity of being an immigrant in the UK. And you just feel it so keenly. And everything that is riding sorry, no pun intended, but like <laughs> riding on him having this bike and what it means, just like, mm. you know, as the process goes on, because what we have, you know, as you said, it takes a while to get in, you get, you really understand like who this person is, what's at stake, who his family is, like, you know, his wife's a cleaner, you know, the kind of, they've got childcare and you kind of unravel, it slowly unravels to realise how much hinges on him having this bike for him to be able to stay there. And like the kind of, just the frustration and anger that at every turn, there's, it just turn this feels like this threat. And I think Alec does a really great job of holding that with under his skin, but like you feel it vibrating, you feel this like stress and this anxiety and this frustration. And I think it's really well shot. I love the way it's kind of shot uh, London 
it really feels mm-hmm. like a London film. You kind of, it's sometimes, you know, I love it when you look around, it's like, oh God, I feel like I could have been to that fast food shop or I've been to that council estate or it's really likely we realise. Um, I love Lucian Samati. I love that he's in it in a small role, but he's such a, like, he's such a great theatre actor and he was like in his dark material. So to see him pop up, it really gives a kind of, uh, I suppose it kind of brings it, well, it adds a calibre to this, to this film that's quite, you know, there's not big names in it. Um, but yeah, I think it was really well done. I like that it wasn't crazy long because with a film where there isn't a lot of dialogue and there's kind of not a lot of action, you that you can you can get into kind of uh, I suppose te- like can feel somewhat tedious. Um, but yeah, I think it, I think it was well paced, well acted. Um, maybe I could have uh, maybe I could have had a bit more. I suppose it's called uh, Focus on the Rider. Maybe I could have explored a bit more with the other characters that I would have liked. Mm. Um, but I think it's it's his first feature, right, Matt Chambers? Yeah, I think it's a very assured first feature. And yeah, I, de- I definitely recommend. Yeah, I feel like, well, I feel like I talked a lot about the stuff I liked uh, about the movie in the interview. So I, I don't want to repeat myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I like, I like how it's in communication with Bicycle Thieves. And the parallels between those characters, just in terms of the performances I mentioned, there's uh, to Alec this idea of like desperation in his eyes because so much of the film he's just he's wearing the helmet, so you're getting a very sort of like limited view <laughs> of his expressions, and he's so good at still maintaining like a a full sense of character when you're only seeing one part of his face. Uh, so I really like that. I think. The the only thing the only thing I I wasn't too wild about was there was something about the construction of the film where and I think this is a thing that happens in a lot of first films there was like a lot of a lot of montages that kept feeling like they were gonna build up to something massive and they didn't and I feel like what's great about this film is is the smallness of the incident like it it is a bike getting stolen which is quite you know as hard as you've experienced it's kind of like an everyday thing that happens to people and the emotionally devastating part of it is that it completely wrecks this guy's life and I think especially for this film to come out now you know in the pandemic where I think a lot of people have been relying on on delivery drivers to (laughs) make I mean I don't know I've been ordering a lot more (laughs) takeaway the past year (laughs) You know, I I think it is the time for a film like this and the time for us to have a conversation about, like, their economic stability because, like, that's fucked up. You shouldn't have your life ruined because of getting your bike stolen. That's something you have absolutely no control over. Like, it's that's a really important conversation to be had. Okay, so, Amon, are we streaming or skipping it? We're streaming. Stream, stream, stream. Yeah. Yeah, stream. I think there's something about a film that makes you feel when something, you know, that's what I think a good movie does. It makes you feel emotions, whatever way. And this felt, I was filled with dread in so many parts of this. I didn't mention it earlier, but I kind of want to add there's a really brilliant scene where um, the rider is speaking to his boss. And this is after he's lost, um, the bike's been stolen. And, um, the camera is slowly very slowly like zooming in and you just feel like just that with the conversation and like him trying to like work out whether what this or if he, what how this is going to affect him because 
you know, the the guy who owns the flat gate, who owns the um, restaurant is also in control of a lot of things in his life. Mm -hmm. And you just like, oh my God, you're just like, I just stop breathing because you're just like, oh God, it's just gonna, it feels so, so hard. And just like, he's just trying to mind his words and you're like, oh God, this is not going well. So yeah, so, and I just, you know, so many moments in this, I just felt that. So, so yeah, I think it really, really handled that well. And yeah, I just, you know, maybe tip your delivery drivers <laughs> after watching this. <laughs> yep, I'm ordering Chinese tonight, so... Whoever, whoever is a lucky person who delivers the cast of the woman might be able to hook up. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I would also say stream, and I would recommend doing a double bill with Bicycle Thieves, uh, which for anyone yeah. who hasn't seen, great classic. It will, you'll feel yeah. pretty bad probably after both movies together, but hey, <laughs> feel bad Fridays. <laughs> oh is that a thing? Uh, <laughs> we're going from bicycles to horses. It's time for cowboys. I'm pretty sure mom's a witch. Your mom is not a witch. She doesn't understand you yet. You're a tomboy. You don't want to wear dresses anymore. Tomboy's just another type of girl, but I'm not a girl. I'm sorry, I don't follow you. I'm in the wrong body, okay? I'm a boy! That was the trailer for Cowboys Songs Aliens. A great reference to the movie Cowboys vs. Aliens. <laughs> I read the script. <laughs> and Harrison Ford. Because we all and what were they looking for? Was it gold? They wanted they wanted the gold. Oh, Daniel Craig! Was it Daniel Craig in that one? Yeah. yeah, yes, Daniel Craig and Harrison Ford and Olivia Wilde. Why do I remember yeah. so much about this movie? <laughs> I swear, as, as a lot of the Olivia Wilde connection in our podcast today, we've had Harry Styles, we've had Jason C. Dacus, and now we've had Cowboys and Aliens. I know, wow. <laughs> Olivia, come on the podcast, Dr. Sky Moore. <laughs> <laughs> Although there is a bit of an alien connection because uh, the protagonist of this film, who's a, a trans kid uh, called Joe, uh, talks about how he he feels like aliens put him in the wrong body. So there is mm -hmm. there is a connection here. <laughs> it's all connected. <laughs> uh, so this is the focus of the family drama that I talked to Anna Kerrigan about last week. Um, to, to remind everyone, uh, the synopsis is that a troubled but well-intentioned father who was recently separated from his wife runs off with his trans son into the Montana wilderness after his ex-wife's refusal to let their son live as his authentic self. Hannah, what were your thoughts on Cowboys? Um, first thoughts, when I texted you guys this, I was like, this cast is stacked. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I love Steve Zahn. Uh, Steve Zahn for me will always be the guy in Sahara. <laughs> <laughs> Him and Matthew McConaughey. And was it Penelope Grace? But um, I feel like he's such, he's 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 always a sporting kind of character, and but he always does his stuff well, but... Uh, in this, he just brought like his the best game ever. He's amazing. And Dowd, who is in it, she plays like a cop who's really cool and like uh, who's really cool. But she just she just brings that like I don't know. There's something about she's such a good character actor. I mean, I know she's mm -hmm. kind of like you mistake her. Um, I often Margot Martindale. I feel like those they're two sides of the same coin. <laughs> like sometimes it's like is that Margot? Is it Anne? It's Anne. It's Anne. Character um, actor Margot Martindale. What is that <laughs> reference to? Bojack Horseman. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, she's in it, and I love her. She, and oh gosh, I just she's in this movie called Mass, which I saw it sort of tip, and I cannot wait for everyone to see it. It's 
phenomenal, but I digress. Um, and then there's like Gillian Bell, who I love. She's, I knew her from Idiot Sitter, this comedy series, but then she was in Britney Runs a Marathon. And I think this, mm-hmm. she brings such a, um, uh, she's she, in that film. She she was very strong and showed that she could bring. She's known for her comedy, but she actually can do drama. I always think comedy actors can do drama better than dramatic actors can do comedy. 100%. I think that's uh, we could talk about that. Later, but I thought in this one where she's playing a mother who is projecting a lot of her anxieties onto her child and seeing that her child living in. Live, feeling and feeling like they are a boy and that's a, that's their truth seeing that as a somehow a reflection on her being this bad mother because you cannot possibly see that this child is in the wrong body rather than it being oh he doesn't want to be like his mother that's why he doesn't mm. want to exist in the female like the way they were born so I think that was a really for her to bring that anxiety I think she did it well her and Steve Zahn had great chemistry Steve Zahn like I keep on banging it up bringing it up along a, a lot but like there's a moment in this that just brought me to tears and he's just like they're the, I don't want to spoil it but like they're in the Montana wilderness and like they've made so many bad decisions but it's all out of love and then it's a point he's just like what should I do and he's just like begging his child to say what it's like oh Steve Zahn let me hug you please <laughs> um but also um you know Sasha like I think it's so wonderful how you have there is it seems there's so many more opportunities I love the idea that children trans kids are setting a new kind of precedent for what child child stories can be child related stories can be and the idea that this person has always now they're gonna grow up and be able to do roles that maybe their forebears have not had the opportunity to because the industry has not been ready for it. And Sasha, like he is so brilliant and 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 obviously understands understands the truth of it because that's his also his experience. I, I could not tell you the personal experience that they went through, so I'm not saying exactly like I assume that their parents mm. didn't run off, like run off to the Montana wilderness. <laughs> this is obviously fictional, but I think there's something so wonderful to see like young trans actors be able to come in there and be the authentic self. And I can only hope that future, you know, they don't even have to be playing the trans kid; they'll just play boy <laughs> or like mm-hmm. man romantic lead um but I think it really balanced um the funny with the dramatic I like the way it kind of went back and forth in time so you kind of realize like how this situation came about um yeah I think it was really I think it was really delicately handled without feeling overbearing um trying to like push like an agenda it's like the agenda is love and acceptance mm. And actually, we can all get there. It just takes some people a little longer than others. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with all of that. Um, I think there's really great drama uh, that you get uh, when parents' hopes and dreams for their kids come up against unexpected obstacles. Mm. Um, Because the character that Ginny and Bell is playing, she's not a bad person, but you can tell that, you know, she's had all these dreams of, like, him, like, having to play nights with other girls and what that means for her daughter and, and that sort of stuff. And they get into the mess of that in a really effective way. One of my few critiques of the film is that it feels that we're missing the last part of 
Gillian Bell's of, of Sally's arc in terms of her accepting Joe for who he is. But on the whole, I think they chant that relationship very effectively. Um, but yeah, this is a father and son story. And Steve Zahn and Sally Knight are just fantastic. You really feel that bond that they have. Um, and you're totally right. Uh, Eddie Redmayne and the Danish girl, this is not. It benefits a lot from actually having a trans uh, a trans person in that role. Uh, so that's great. And I also agree in, in, in that I love how it opens media res and uh, has these flashbacks uh, gradually uh, being inserted into the film to sketch how they got to that point. And each time we get a flashback, it feels like it comes at the right time and it doesn't, doesn't take away from the present story. You're not like wanted to, you know, desperately go back into the, you know, to the central present story. You're really getting a lot from these past flashbacks, which I like. The only other thing that I would add is that Gene Beck's score for this, I absolutely loved. I think it's one of the best scores I've heard this year. It's a perfect complement to the film and it just feels, it just evokes that modern Western feeling. And I really love that too. What was it going to be like the score, the soundtrack? So you got you you got you got you got you got your costume corner. I think I, I think I was like you know soundtrack street or something. Yeah. And <laughs> I think it should yeah. be the soundtrack month soundtrack situation. Ooh, <laughs> I like that. I think it's like I, like I think that. it's like jazz. I think that's <laughs> I like that a lot. We need a jingle. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, it needs to be smooth jazz, like soundtrack situation. Soundtrack situation with a mind. <laughs> oh my gosh! Amazing. Uh, yeah, I I I agree with you guys. I I think for me the the defining parts of cowboys are it's it's the the nuance and the compassion and the care and the love that was put into Kerrigan's script um i thought my favorite thing about it is that the film is about how all these like expectations of gender and gender roles and these barriers that we put between us like they are confining and suffocating for everybody and and you see it with all three characters i mean you know joe in an obvious way uh, sally she has so much self-hatred because mm. she has this very narrow perception of like what a woman is and what womanhood is. She thinks of herself as like, oh, I have to be the person uh, cleaning the dishes and in the kitchen all the time. And I have to be the discipl disciplinarian. I have to be the one to suck while the men get to go have adventures. And, and then you look at um, Troy and what I really liked about his character is the way that he kind of tackles the the perceptions of mental health because he, he has bipolar and it means that everyone immediately, the second that it's clear that the son and dad are missing, it's like, oh, he's bipolar, he's violent, he's a threat, mm. like, you know, we need to treat him like that. And and then you see the actual Troy, who is the dad, and he's just such a a loving like person, mm -hmm. and and yeah, he there is a moment of violence, but it's very important that it's it's done to protect his son. Like that's mm -hmm. that's why he's fighting to protect his son. Look, I think all the transphobia in in the UK at the moment is 
disgusting and <laughs> to see mm-hmm. it from people who stand here and have the audacity to say that they're progressive people um knowing that their beliefs would harm a character like joe like i just really wish that everyone would just watch this movie not and even understand. a character like joe sasha knight like exactly kids, like yeah so, <laughs> you know yeah. and I'm, I'm tired of this bullshit of saying like oh we're doing it to protect kids did i know you're hurting you're hurting these kids like yeah. and this movie is a great example of it um so yeah sorry had to do a bit of a mini rant no, of course. <laughs> i think you know the best thing film can give us is places um places in a perspective that we're not privy to or we don't know well it opens up to stories that we have absolutely no experience of and only hope that we can learn from it and grow from it and you know I think this Cowboys is exactly the type of movies that we need so people can have some more empathy and feel the emotions I love emotions but like (laughs) you connect with people through film that's the power of cinema and I yeah I just it makes me you know I love watching films like this because it makes me understand something and makes me think like you know maybe I'll leave it to people who know a bit more about themselves to kind of kind of set the kind of rules of what should be or how they should live and not let me dictate that so but yeah yeah so it sounds like we're all in agreement, but just just to clarify, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hannah, stream or skip? Stream, one hundred percent. Where can we stream it? Is it VOD? VOD. Okay. The VOD. I don't never know what to do. I always just say like, Google it, <laughs> and I feel really lazy. But that's that's how I vo- I find VOD things. Come uh, to the Fade to Black podcast for the most informative film. Amon, stream or skip? Uh, once I've had a Google stream. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, stream this one for sure. Yeah, and I would also stream. Um, I don't know if this is a helpful tip. I use a website called Just Watch. And it tells you exactly where things are available. Uh, So handy, handy tip. (laughs) (laughs) So now we're going from the calmness, the tenderness, the genteelness of cowboys to Mortal Kombat! (laughs) (laughs) Throughout history, different cultures all over the world reference a great tournament of champions that dragon marking i think it's an invitation to fight for something known as mortal combat cool so that was the trailer for mortal that's the last time I do it, I promise. Um, <laughs> and it stars Lewis Tan as washed-up MMA fighter Cole Young. He was born with a mysterious dragon-shaped birthmark on his chest, which means he's been chosen to fight for Earth against evil would-be conquerors from other realms in Mortal Kombat, a once-in-a-generation tournament. Uh, but before all of that, Young and the rest of Earth's best warriors, including Sonya Blade and Jax and Liu Kang, they will have to fend off attacks from outworld sorcerer Shang Tsung, played by Chin Han, and his minions, including villainous cryomancer Sub-Zero, who's played by Joe Taslim. Uh, Clarice, 
what did you make of Mortal Kombat? Okay, it's the last one. <laughs> you know what bothered me the most? Oh boy. <laughs> There's no Mortal Kombat in Mortal Kombat. Thank yeah. you. They Thank don't you. do it. <laughs> Thank you. I was like, when's the tournament? <laughs> When is he having it? Like, uh, sorry, I don't know if that's a spoiler, but there's no, there's absolutely no Mortal Kombat in the movie called Mortal Kombat. There's Mortal Kombat with a C. There's no Mortal Kombat with a K. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I think that ties to my larger point about this film, that it, it does the thing that I find extremely irritating, which it goes into the film assuming that there will be a sequel and assuming Mm. that this is one part of a very long franchise. And so this entire film feels like homework. It feels like the sort of like the the study book you have to get through before you're allowed to watch actual Mortal Kombat. <laughs> and it, it's so much. It, it's so much of it is exposition, and we got to get these characters together, and then they have to do like a a Marvel. This is the thing. It's also trying so hard to be the MCU when it's like you're Mortal Kombat. You're the kicky, punchy, fighty, rip a spine out of somebody's <laughs> body game. <laughs> this is what we came here to see. Um, you know, it, they have to go and train and learn their powers and and that we have to understand all the lore about Mortal Kombat and the Earthrealm and the Outworld and the Elder Gods and who's angry at who and the, the yeah, the mark, the Mortal Kombat mark that you're an Earth. And it's just like, I came here to watch somebody's spine be ripped out of their body. <laughs> and that never even happens. <laughs> like, why? Why am I being shortchanged here? Because you can tell that they kept like they've kept several of the the biggest characters from the game for a sequel that now may or may not happen and they kept the coolest finishing move for a sequel that may or may not happen and and so I don't yeah I just <laughs> it just felt like it was a pre-movie and not a movie and um I also just don't think it was gory enough because I've watched all the finishing moves of Mortal Kombat and like you could yeah <laughs> like we are being shortchanged here like those games are incredibly gory and that's why they're cool and this was like you know a little bit gory but this just makes me very it's it's, it's this is hilarious to me because like you know Clarice is like a very you know she's a very hilarious fun person to be around and like she's like I want spies get out of their bodies why is hey, the cool where is the look, violence don't judge books by their cover. <laughs> Some of us are very dark, dark, dark souls. But it's just, it's Mortal Kombat. Why are we watching Mortal Kombat if it's not to watch somebody's spine get ripped out of their body? It's the whole point of it. (laughs) I didn't come here for characters. I didn't come here for exposition and lore. They did show a spine. I was like, when I saw that, I was like, just rip it out. Just just grab it afterwards. But there we go. Um, you guys are violent. <laughs> you know what? I do appreciate. I, I, my biggest pet peeve about the slew of action films that we have that are made for PG thirteen audiences is that you don't see blood, and I think it desensitizes us to the actual violence that goes on. Isn't it like insane 
like even if you look at Fast and Furious, right? <laughs> if you go from the first Fast and Furious film, you see Letty get in a car accident. She's got blood coming out of her mouth. She's like really hurt. When you see that guy hanging from the wire thing, you see blood. Fast forward to like where is it six or five? Six when seven is it when Jason Statham comes in it? And then it's yeah. The Rock and him having that massive fight in that thing. And they're going through plate glass. Like, it's just insane. Not one bit of blood. And I just think, like, what I appreciate, maybe it's not as gory as it should be, but I do appreciate the amount of blood that's actually on show in this film. Because that's... And I think that's actually more to do... You know, Asian cinema shows blood far more often than Western cinema does. Mm. And I think it's actually... You see you see the results. Like, violent. this is what happens when you're that violent there's going to be spurt in blood. Like, even the, there's a bit in it where Sonya Blade holds, like, a, 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 a knife to Kano's throat. And it's blood there. You see blood. It's like, yeah, because if you hold a sharp knife to someone's throat, it's like, and, and you see all these other, like, action films, it's like, no, 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 or we can't. We've got to get past the, like, senses. So anyway, so that's, uh, that is my praise. It might not be as gory, <laughs> but at least it showed you when people are actually having fights to the death. It's not just like, we're going to do a quick shot away <laughs> and then that, that's mm-hmm. it. Oh, we'll pretend, we'll guess what happens. Um, that's about kind of it. <laughs> um, I'm so wow. disappointed. I'm so disappointed. I think for me, this is like I was put, it felt like I was watching G.I. Joe 2007. Like it felt like throughout it that I'm watching a film that was made a decade earlier and still and it's got everything wrong I think there's something about you really appreciate a good camera work and cinematography when it comes to fight choreography and how they shoot that and capturing that and this is you know this does not do it well there's so many moments you're like this is such a weird angle like it's so close up like it doesn't it doesn't allow the fighters to breathe and like even just some low moves and that's not to say these aren't great fighters like they've got really good Louis Tan is a really good fighter. Hiroyuki um, Sanada, like, he's a legendary, like, fight, like, these, they're very good action stars, and it just felt such a shame that the people directing it didn't have an eye for it. Um, that was really disappointing. You know, and I think, to be honest, it was, it was this thing where it was like, I need to give fan service to, like, have these words in it, but it didn't really ring true. Like, you know, you have a bit where, you know, you introduce, sorry to like, but like Hanzo obviously is like, you know, anyone who's more combat, again, I feel like you're going in there kind of have to have some sort of understanding, but there's a lot of exposition, as you mentioned, Clarice, that kind of helps you along the road. But Hanzo, I appreciate when I said the subtitles were in Japanese or Chinese. I think having, showing that difference that I thought, oh, that's good. <laughs> that's kind of like <laughs> progress. But then you realise he's never spoken a word in English, but you have him say when he comes back, get over here. And it's like, why would he say that in English? Like, why would... It doesn't make sense that he's been in this hell world for ages and suddenly, like, his first words coming out of it are in English. That, for me, felt like that doesn't... Like, true to his story. They've got English learning classes in hell. Right, yeah. He's obviously been watching Netflix. They've got adult college in hell. Like, you know, there's stuff to do down there. (laughs) Um, You're not wrong with that point, but there's a certain thing called the rule of cool. And but it wasn't even cool. It didn't, it yes, didn't it even feel was. cool. The thing is, right, sorry oh. to like for people, um, spoil it, but this doesn't happen until very later on. And it, it, and it felt all the way through, it felt like kind of unearned. Like it felt like this is not a good enough film for it to, and it, it, felt, it felt like you're just throwing in sound bites. 
Like there's a bit where someone kills it and he goes, fatality, quietly. And it's like, oh, okay, is that like, <laughs> it just, it, it just, and, and also just the biggest cop out is that like, there wasn't a tournament, like you're having all these preambles or these fights and these characters. And you know, who's the guy who plays um, Liu Qiang? Like his character felt like, <laughs> he felt a bit like Eddie Redmayne in Jupiter's Ascending. <laughs> it was like this very hammy, it was so hammed up. Um, and even like Raiden, it was just, you know, the eyes. I mean, I think my favorite character probably was Kano because he was the only one who felt like he lived in the real world rather than lived in. Because <laughs> that's the thing, it's like, what is this balance? It's like, is this going to be this fantasy world where actually nothing exists? But then you have this Kano character who's always bringing in, throwing in like the references. He's trying to be like the, he's kind of trying to be like Tony Stark. But like if Tony Stark was like a kind of problem, oh, actually Tony Stark is a problematic character if you think about it. <laughs> um, so yeah, I just, I was just, I just felt a bit underwhelmed and I, I, yeah, I felt like this is such a dated, it could have been a TV movie. And even like the character who plays the actor, sorry, I'm going to bang it on now, but like <laughs> even the woman who plays Sonya Blade, Jessica McNamee, she just she just looked like something out of like a noughties <laughs> like a noughties like TV series of like Mortal Kombat. It just felt like well, she, oh, she, she had like this look about her. Bridget is it Bridget Bridget Wilson, who played Wilson, the, yeah. Original um Sonya Blade in the nineteen ninety five one. They kinda look yeah. quite similar. <laughs> no, it this it had this I think altogether it had this whole dated like early noughties like or you know first second noughties even 90s feel for it and I was kind of disappointed that like um you know again there were literally three female characters in it two of them barely get any sp speaking words and the one goes like the one like white woman and I get she's like the character or ever but in a, in a franchise that's so male heavy it just felt like oh you took away an opportunity for like an actual Asian woman to be in this film because you changed the characterization, it would have been cool if you changed like, I felt like if you're gonna do that, you know, you could have made Sonya Blade like someone more diverse and then still have an Asian woman in this film. Or had Katana, so... they, they don't have Katana, who's like one right. of the main characters. So this is my issue, it's like, you've got, <laughs> you know, they're all big like, there's so many Asian men, it's like, but where's the represent, where's Asian women, as we know Asian, and it just, I know it's such a, and I'm not saying, I, I think there's baby sets, I'm like, whatever, but like, I just felt like this is the movie that you make sure that's an Asian woman is represented in, and I felt like, yeah. So for me personally, just, you know, just just badly directed, um, badly, sh I just think the CGI and stuff was written up as well, and just like the kind of storyline was just not what I wanted from a Mortal Kombat movie. Well, I liked it. <laughs> 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 oh my goodness wow this is this is not this is not what i expected um i had a good time with this movie uh i you know you you're talking about sort of you know the 90s there a little bit we've seen what 90s mortal Kombat looks like this is not that um and i said I early no i said noughties I did say G.I. Joe sorry, 2009. Sorry, said I said okay, something there. Okay, 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 you got me. But yeah, um, you know, we've had the, those two sort of Mortal Kombat films in the 90s, and this is definitely not that. Um, I think on the whole, the tone worked. I do concede that uh, a Mortal Kombat movie in which Mortal Kombat doesn't happen is a very ballsy move, um, to put it mildly, uh, but it doesn't skimp on the fights, even though, you know, too much of the film, I agree. I also continue as it is in training mode. 
um, when the fights come, when the fatalities come, uh, they were brutal, they were bloody uh, enough for me because, you know, I'm a mellow person and not violent like you two. Um, <laughs> but I like that. I think everything uh, where Scorpion and the Sub-Zero were, were concerned was great. Like, I loved the final fight they had, which has been heavily teased in the trailers, so, you know, you want to come out with, with spoilers and just know. Um, and the opening uh, scene, I think, is easily the, the best scene in the movie. Yeah, um, agreed. Uh, I, I, I really like that, too. Um, there, there is some over-editing in the fights, but again, I think, on the whole, it's really, really great. Uh, and they just had a number of cool moments. Um, you know, not only the fatalities, but, you know, let's just say there's a flawless victory at one point in this film, and that was a very cool moment in the final fight between Scorpion and Sub-Zero. Again, this is heavily teasing the trailers, but at one point, you know, Sub-Zero cuts Scorpion, blood comes gushing out, he then turns that blood into an ice dagger, which he then stabs Scorpion yeah. with. That's cool! That was, I'm to sorry, be fair, that and is, and that's something <laughs> I tweeted about at the time, it was like, that's, seeing that, and I will concede that the best moments, sorry, I feel like I'm taking away, but like, actually, the best moments <laughs> are with Scorpion and Sub-Zero. The 100%. first, the end and the beginning. It's just the middle bit. <laughs> it's just the whole little bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and the reason why, um, you know, is that Lewis Tan, who is an actor that I like, this is his first lead role. And it's really weird that, you know, you mentioned there's so many awesome characters in the Mortal Kombat universe. Why they felt they had to create a wholly new person for this movie um, was strange, given that they could have easily had Lewis Tan play somebody like Johnny Cage, who is a cocky, wisecracking Hollywood movie star. That, that, would, that would be an, just a much more fun protagonist to have for this movie than Cole Young, who is just very vanilla. He's given this chosen one narrative that we've seen a hundred times before. Also, like, Lewis Tan is like, I mean, slightly annoying thing is like, obviously his backstory is like, his clan is supposed to be Japanese. And Lewis Tan is half Chinese, which is an interesting thing. But like even that, when you mm. say you could have done Johnny Cage, because again, like the whole thing is the idea that like a baby gets survived. I was I'm sad it wasn't a woman. Like you know, it's like this there's, there's a young his the sister like a woman survivor. Then mm -hmm. she's had babies, and therefore there that's her role, <laughs> a baby's role to produce mm -hmm. babies. But like you could have done if she if the kids in San Francisco. You could have played into the fact that yeah, he's like mixed race. He's actually his mother's. You know, his mother could be you know Japanese or something in this. But like you know, having that legacy. I mean, how long is it supposed to be? You could have made him Johnny Cage, and you know they obviously race swapped like another character. So I don't really. I totally agree. It seemed like weird, and he was very dry. Yeah, mm, he just was yeah. always like my family. What about my family? Like I, I would enjoy a character with one more motivation that isn't my wife and child. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's um. Also, yeah. I really like that young girl, the actress. She's in. She's in the two all the boys I loved before. Um, she plays one of the sisters in it. Uh, in that Netflix, you know that one to all the boys franchise thing she's that younger sister i was like hoping she'd come out and be like the i also i was in a way i was kind of throughout i was like oh wouldn't it be sick if she's the chosen one because she's the one like pepping her dead up use her uppercut <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah there, there were enough cool moments for me like i am a fan of this mortal kombat franchise you know i you know grew up playing the games and there was enough for me here to make me want to see more um uh 
And yeah, you know, again, it's a ballsy move to not have people like Johnny Cage, like Katana, to not have Mortal Kombat and the Mortal Kombat movie is a ballsy move. But I think they do just about enough here to make me want to see sort of what happens next. Um, they must have a Mortal Kombat tournament in any future sequels. I'll also just say that Joe Taslim as Sub-Zero is really, really good. Um, he doesn't need to say much. He just brings a presence and a menace to that character, which very much fits that character. <laughs> One of my favorite moments in the film uh, is where it's Jax versus Sub-Zero. And like, Jax is like, I've done six tours, oh, man. Know, yeah. <laughs> and Sub-Zero's like, I don't care. I mean, no, that's like, where I was like, I don't care, but he's just like, do you know who I am? I'm Sub-Zero, dude. I did love he's, that. He even says that. that. He says, I'm Sub-Zero. <laughs> <laughs> Great, really good script. Yeah. Um, can we, but one is interesting on the pod this week, uh, this week we've got, all featured directorial debuts and this was this Mortal Kombat was a directorial debut of Simon McCoy and I don't know maybe like Mortal Kombat shouldn't be the first film you've made feature film you've made because I think maybe that's part of the problem a bit it was not tight enough strong enough it didn't have an exact I think it was too much relying on Mortal Kombat as a concept as a brand as like this nostalgic thing that it could kind of coast. And I think that's, I think the details were lost. I mean, when you think about like, you know, even even some, like the John Wick movies, which are full of violence and kind of gory as well, just the slickness to that and just how well that shot. And it just, it just goes to show that like, sometimes your first film shouldn't be like a, I don't know what the budget on this, but I can imagine it's in the mm. double figures. Um, it shouldn't mm. be your first film. Um, here's here's one thing I I will add um, because you mentioned John Wick and there's another film which I was thinking of Batman Begins mm. these films when they were made sequels were not in their mind Um, they wanted to make the best film that they possibly could and then see what happens after that Um, and I just think you know I think this is partly the MCU effect for sure, but if filmmakers remember that first and foremost, um, like I, w- I would have, I expect that if that had been the modus operandi in making this film, the film would be a lot different to what we've ended up with rather than what is clearly sort of, we're going to save this for that and save this for that. Just put everything into this film, make it the best that it can be. Cause even if you do that, would, would the, would, with this franchise, with the with the concept of this franchise, even if you you know if if you if you go into a film like this with that mindset, inherently there will be ideas for sequels without you putting stuff back for the sequels mm. because it's Mortal Kombat. Um, so yeah, um, I just hope that you know it, it does look like we're going to get a sequel because um, the figures that I've been reading in terms of box office, um, especially in fact doing in COVID. Uh, Mortal Kombat has been a very a, a success in that regard. So I will not be surprised if within weeks we get Mortal Kombat 2 confirmed. Um, I just hope that when that happens, they go into it with a mindset like 
this is the only movie, this is the only Mortal Kombat movie where we're going to mm. get to make it again. Yeah. Go into it with that mindset and put in everything. Put an up. actual Mortal Kombat in it. Yeah, put a fucking tournament <laughs> in it. But I think, you know, it's interesting, you know, you mentioned Batman Begins and obviously we mentioned John Wick, but I think they had a clearer vision. I think these directors had a clearer vision and intention of what they wanted to do. Like, you watch that movie and you're mm. like, you watch Batman Begins, like, this is Nolan. Like, even with the John Wick, with, like, Chad um, Stelisky. 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 It's like, mm. He is, what I love about him is that, like, he it was a fight choreographer. Like, he's, he knows, he knows how to shoot that. And I think the importance, if you're doing a film about fighting, that is literally, like, <laughs> that's, like, the whole thing. That's a whole concept. The whole concept is of people fighting to the death. You have to know how to shoot that. And you can do all the other story styles, all whatever, around it, but unless you actually have coherent beautifully shot like fight sequences it's just it just for me it's just don't don't even bother and i just hope i can only hope if they do a sequel they'll get a new director because i just don't think he was up to the i just don't think he was up to the challenge i think you know this is not against i don't have anything really against the actors even though some of them but i kind of think like the director did not this is a guy who's like made his name making commercials and like i know people can do obviously transition you know ridley scott and you know they you know then like because all them they worked in commercials before they did that but like there was a stepping stone i don't know i just Mm -hmm. think like this is like you can't be doing cgi heavy movies a lot of fighting and go into that like cold turkey with with all of that said it's still a stream for me uh Clarice, what, what do you stand on this? Um, honestly, watch the 1995 one by Paul W. <laughs> Anderson. I, think I that, love that one. I'm I think sorry, it's way like... better. It's it's cheesy, mm. but like Paul W. Anderson, we, I mean, we're talking about ideas of vision. Like he had a vision for that movie. Yeah. And that fight when they're in the, the all the ladders, it's like they're in hell, but there's loads of ladders. <laughs> Yeah. It looks <laughs> fabulous, and and some of the fighting looks great, and it makes more sense <laughs> for the world of yeah. Mortal See, Kombat that people would be screaming, "Get over here!" Yeah, no, that's what that's that's so true. It's like it makes sense in that in the context of a tournament, like finish him and all that type of stuff. It's like you're saying finish him, but isn't the finish him thing supposed to come after you've beaten him up a few times and then it's like finish him. <laughs> like yeah. he's like knocked over and it's like Because it's him. telling you to press the button for the finishing move. Yeah, like, right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it, you know what saying that I remember so vividly of like of like one of the costumes I think I really love Sub-Zero and Scorpions because they were kind of like the same twins mm-hmm. twinsies weren't they but like I just remember this like long shot of like one at the end of a kind of and it was so like you knew he was coming towards you like shit it was like that that had that space that kind of distance that create that sense of fear and tension you're like oh my god like how's it gonna happen and I, I think it didn't play it was a bit boxy boxed in Boxer boxer. So yeah, mine is sorry. To, I probably should show. I probably yeah. say. I I probably say skip. Um, but if you've yeah. got a now now TV, um, because it's what is it Warner? So it's like now TV. Maybe like yeah. get drunk and watch it. I don't know if you're if you're a diehard Mortal <laughs> Kombat fan who's like I need to see this. But otherwise, I just think it's meh. Fatality. Skip yeah. wins. Playing um. Mortal Kombat. It's been yeah. two hours playing Mortal Kombat Eleven, which is. Cool. That's the one with all the cool, the cool things. Do you have it? No, but I've watched all the videos. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a download. Hannah, do you play? I want to play you guys. I've got, I've got 
all the street. I was a I was a street fighter girl. I was Chun Li. Oh, yeah, I was like Chun I got, but then I got this street fighter like twenty fifth anniversary thing, and then I also recently got the Dragon Ball Z, which let me tell you guys, it is just crazy. It looks so beautiful. It's like these. It's like oh my god, I can't even. Have, I'm just like there jamming whatever buttons. Just like, what do I do? Because I don't know the moves. It's like, so I'm just like, just like, and I try and learn the combinations. Like, there's, there's too many A, B, dash, R, Z, R. So I just like, just protect, hope for the best. <laughs> well, we're going from superpowered warriors and their arcanas to superpowered heroes with Jupiter's legacy. What was dad like when he was younger? Nothing ever rattled a bastard. The man I knew was never at home when I was a kid. Busy saving the world. Brandon, Chloe, everything you do is a reflection on this family. We are family. Do, do, do. Ooh, I got all my supers in me. Do, 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 do. <laughs> yes. Uh, Jupiter's Legacy is the first original uh, superhero comic book adaptation series from Netflix since they acquired Millerwell. Mark Miller, who you'll know, he did like wrote Kingsman, he did Kick-Ass, he did Wanted, and he also kind of like wrote a lot of the Marvel stories um, that we have now been seeing in the MCU, The Ultimate, um, Old Man Logan, Civil War, a lot of that's borrowed from him. So he's kind of done a whole a lot of stuff. He's kind of done a lot of stuff for superheroes, but now he's bringing it to the small screen with Jupiter's Legacy, which follows the story of the world's first superheroes who received their powers in the 1930s during the Great Depression. Uh, but in present day, they are now the revered elder guard of like a paramilitary group, um, but they're super hard children. Um, they're struggling to live up to the legendary feats of their parents. Um, the family are the Samson family. We've got um, Lady Liberty, played by Leslie Bibb. We've got Josh Duhamel, who's playing Sheldon Samson, who's the utopian. Um, and then you've got uh, this younger, there's Chloe Samson, there's Brandon, uh, Brandon Samson, and Chloe's kind of like off the rail, kind of like, actually, I did an interview with Mark, and he said that Carrie Fisher was kind of the inspiration for this character, because she was like, what if you're, you know, Carrie Fisher her dad was Eddie Fisher, her mum was Debbie Reynolds, she might have been Princess Leia, but she felt like she could never live up to it. And we all know Carrie Fisher had her own issues with drugs and alcohol. Well, Chloe's got her own issues with drugs and alcohol. Um, so yeah, so it's kind of like, you know, a, a very epic kind of Shakespearean <laughs> kind of overpowering, uh, fighting, cl conflicting ideologies. Um, and it kind of has these massive global ramifications. And we go back and forth in time as we see what led to the original, um, uh, the utopian and, you know, the original Samson's heroes getting their powers and how actually now, kind of a hundred years later, what the state of the world is and whether those ideals and values are still working in the world that we live in today. So, uh, that's me, uh, Amon. You've watched, I should probably preface this actually because we had a slight uh, miscommunication and instead of watching <laughs> Jupiter's Legacy, Clarice has watched all of Drag Race. <laughs> <laughs> I watched uh, Jupiter Ascending. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, sorry. It's not, a, I'm just dumb and I didn't, <laughs> I didn't hey. do the assignment. <laughs> She did not. She did not understand this. I did not okay. understand the assignment. Um, um, so I'll just be not um, present for this bit. 
Just imagine Clarice nodding silently along to everything <laughs> that I'm saying. Yeah, just throw in a few, um, mm, great point, yeah. <laughs> um, but but um, Amon has watched um, all eight episodes. Congratulations, you get a prize after the show. <laughs> Thank you, can't wait. <laughs> um, what, so what did you think of Jupiter's Legacy? I liked it on the whole. Um, I think it asked interesting questions about the ethics of superheroes and the sort of deconstruction of superheroes in the modern era. They It works here um, where it doesn't fall something like Batman v Superman because this is a fresh world where the characters aren't as established as a Batman and Superman. Not that it stopped Zack Snyder from trying, of course. <laughs> um, the makeup is initially distracting, but I quickly got over it. And I think... Part of the reason why is because the performances are really good. Josh Duhamel um, is not an actor <laughs> I've really taken that much notice of in the past. But he is, I was, I did not realize he was capable of a performance like this. He is really, really good. He's really convincing in both the past storyline where his character Sheldon, he's on the verge of being driven mad in pursuit of these powers. Um, and he's also, you know, really convincing in the present storyline as an old gruff superhero who's struggling to connect with his kids. Just the difference in how he modulates his voice um, between the two is really, really impressive. I was leaving a gap for you, Clarice, to say a really great point, but it's okay. You, um, missed, you missed your moment. It's fine. Josh Duhamel, um, <laughs> uh, married to, to Fergie? No, they or, split up, babe. Uh, oh, divorce no. now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're failing. He's that guy from the Transformers <laughs> movies. He's always in the military, so they're saying, you know, follow up this prime and do all that sort of stuff with, with Tyrese. Um, that that is sort of primarily where I knew him from but prior to this. And again, he's like, I cannot tell you how shockingly good he is in this. Um, and you know, the, the action when it comes is pretty good. Um, there's a big sort of battle in the premiere episode, which is great. There's a really cool uh, character introduction in episode seven, which was really, really great as well. Uh, those are probably the high points in terms of action. Um, at times, it drags a little bit. Um, I will say that. And I, as, as good and as fleshed out as the adult superheroes are, the younger superheroes aren't really. Uh, Chloe's plot especially feels a bit repetitive at points, and she really frustrated me <laughs> later later as, as the series progressed and brandon as well his arc is you know very one note very repetitive um and you know the the big sort of flash point of episode one uh you you feel like he would be primed for a really sort of great interior um introspection in terms of what his character is going through and how it relates to everything else and we don't really get that or as much of that as i liked and then, you know, it's it's really interesting just in terms of having this show come out at this point um, because we've had things like The Boys, we've had things like Invincible, which again, you should watch Invincible. <laughs> um, and in terms of, you know, all the recent super subversive, unique content, this is very much at the latter end of that spectrum. Like, I think The Boys and Invincible are far superior to anything uh, Jupiter's Legacy does. But that doesn't mean that I'm not intrigued by it. Doesn't mean that I don't want to see more from it. Um, so yeah, I, on the whole, I liked it. But 
you know, definitely prioritize the boys in Invincible over this one. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've read the, uh, I suppose the difficulty is, is when you're adapting a comic book, which is actually quite small, there was volume, I mean, this is taking, so there was volume one and volume two, and then they did a prequel series. And I suppose in the adaptation process, they're trying to expand, like things happen a lot quicker. And so watching the series after I've mm -hmm. read that, it's like they're trying to, flesh out relationships that you didn't get like there's a lot of mm -hmm. bits that you don't get between chloe and her father and actually becomes a bit more of a father i mean again i'm not going to spoil it because also if you read the comic books you have no, you know exactly where this is going so what you've said about like brandon mm -hmm. and um unlike the kind of roles of their playing i'm sh once you get to like season two it's going to be far i think it's far and that's the I suppose that's the issue, isn't it? It's like what we were saying, like if you're mm -hmm. waiting for the sequel. But I do promise that there's definitely going to be more from them and just really... Yeah, I think this has definitely been the Josh Duhamel show. I was, I, you know, I said it, I was like, wow, like I've not seen this, mm -hmm. I've never seen a performance like this from him. Um, you know, mm -hmm. I, I mean, he's he's done a lot of like, you know, romantic dramas. And I think I do remember in Transformers mm -hmm. and he was quite fun in that, but he wasn't the main. But I think this is really, really like showcased his abilities, um, his mm -hmm. special abilities. Um, and I love Leslie Bibb and I just feel like she, <laughs> <laughs> he should, he, I think she should get some more time. Also Ben Daniels, who will forever be a villain to me after he broke up um, the relationship in, do you watch Cutting It? Like, <laughs> he was in Cutting It, this, no, like, BBC drama set in a hairdresser's in Manchester, and he came in and he broke up, like, the relationship, and was not happy about it, and since then he's always been a villain. And um, I think he really navigates this kind of, like, um, you don't know where he stands on that. It's quite good. You're like, oh, could he be bad? And I think he's very good at playing, like, you don't know if you trust him or not, especially when his powers are, like, mind control, so it's like, oh, shit. Mm -hmm. Um I appreciate the amount of violence in this. Like you said, it's quite interesting. You mentioned the boys in Invincible because those are ones that really lean into the kind of violence. And as I said earlier, Mortal Kombat, I think it's really important we show that these are people with superpowers and when they hit someone, blood will be spilled and people's bones mm -hmm. will blow out and stuff. So I thought that was well done. I think... Um, I I don't know like I I like I did I liked it I liked it as a series but I feel that maybe because we have seen other like you said some other shows that have done this already I suppose you know the fact mm -hmm. is this was written in the twenty thirteen so this isn't exactly like they're not just creating a story this story's been around but because there's such a boom of superhero stories at the moment does it stand out I think I personally like think I'm looking forward to the second season. Because I feel like this mm -hmm. is doing a lot of like, it feels like a prequel. Set up. Yeah, I feel like it's like, yep, a, exactly. yeah, it's a lot exactly. of set up. And, you know, when you read the comics, it gets to it a lot quicker. Like so much happens and you're ready. So I just know. Mm. So I, I suppose if you, uh, I shouldn't say you should watch it just because you're going to get more second season. But, you know, I think so, some of it is like worth worthwhile. But um, I'm not sure if I'm like mm. crazy about it as I have been with, as you said, the boys Invincible. Mm. It's just really interesting because like, you know, the boys in Invincible, obviously they're also based on comics, but at no, maybe not at no point, but it feels like any sort of, you know, sequel teasing that they are doing is sort of, limited to you know the final minutes yeah. of the last episode type thing 
Uh, and this and Mortal Kombat just feels like all the way through, you can feel that it's holding something back. Mm. Um, yeah. And yeah, and they've changed um, it. They've ch- it's, I, it was quite disappointing. They've changed some things that I was like kind of shocked about, like an ending, an end death. I was really shocked about because that character plays a really good part in the volume two. And I was kind of disappointed about that. But I suppose, you know, what I think the issue is here is that like each episode was an hour, pretty much an hour. Mm-hmm. And it felt like an hour. And it's like, oh, this is eight hour. It, it, it didn't, I think it needed to be tighter. I think they could have cut back. I think that's the problem sometimes we're getting. I think that's what the Marvel Netflix series had an issue with when, you know, latter series people like there's just too much of it. We don't need hour-long... Because it just it's just so intense, especially if you're making it as a film. Like, that's what they say. It's like, I made an eight-hour film. It's like, please don't. <laughs> For me, it's more about sort of storytelling and intent, I think. Because, again, there's, there's, there's some, like, you know, sequel teasing in Invincible. But at its heart, that first season is about a father and his son um, and sort of, you know, superheroing and sort of one trying to live up to the other and having that sort of being shattered um, for reasons which I'll not get into. But that is sort of the core of that show. If I were to ask you now, what is the core of Jupiter's legacy? What were they trying to say with this first season? I wouldn't really know how to answer that question after watching the first season. I need to have that storytelling and intent. That needs to be, you know, that answer needs to be clear um, before you sort of, you know, have sort of sequels and everything in your mind. And I just feel like the answer to that question is going to be answered in season two rather than season yeah, one. Yeah, and I think and the way it left it, I thought, you know, because it's eight exactly. episodes, I honestly was like, oh, are they just giving us eight episodes and then they'll give us the other two, like there'll be two more to come when they release it. You know, sometimes they do that with series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so th- the way it ended was actually quite anticlimactic for me but again I suppose and the fact that I've read these comics and you haven't and we're both feeling that way I think basically Mm. the issue here is like pacing I think pacing is obviously something that it needs to and yeah and I just uh, it's a shame you want it to pick up but um but anyway okay so what we're saying then I I think I'm gonna say if you're if that's if uh, I I, I think I'm gonna say stream but only a cautious stream it's like Maybe watch it, give it, give it a chance. But I can ima- I can understand why people might not want to invest in it unless you're invest if you like this sort of genre. But maybe give an episode yeah. a go and see how you get on, and then you know, obviously, make a choice. But it's hard to say commit to eight. I pro- like eight episodes, and it's like, yeah, especially when again some of those episodes do drag. But on the whole, um, I would say stream. Um, I had a good enough time with it. It, it does feel like setup, but at times it's a very interesting, entertaining setup. Mm, mm. And as I say, I do want to see more from in, in future. So yeah, stream. But if you have not streamed The Boys or Invincible, stream that before you stream. This. Or maybe watch Stupid Legacy first and then watch that because it's like. Um, <laughs> but also, just a shout out again, Josh Duhamel. I just think he's amazing. I think he's. I think he's honestly he's really good. stand out. And and Matt Lanter. I think that's someone who's new from Nine Hundred Two One Zero. Is Moody Dick. <laughs> um, he's. Re- I think he's really. I think he's really. Um, I think he's really charismatic yeah. in this as well. So. I actually, know uh, Matt Lanter from a show called Timeless. Uh, which yeah. is both seasons of which are streaming on Netflix right now. If you have not watched that, that is something I highly uh-huh. recommend. He's really, really great in that. And I really love that show. Cancelled before it's time because um, it was really good. Uh, but yes, that is Jupiter's Legacy. And we are staying 
in the superhero world for this week's Hot Take. Ah, ow. <laughs> I swear, every time it gets a bigger gap, there's a bigger gap. I've been waiting there a minute next time. It's like... <laughs> We've known for a while that a black Superman would be coming, but this week it was confirmed that Warner Brothers planned to use the Clark Kent iteration for their new Man of Steel. But with Calvin Ellis and Valzod in DC's roster, are the creators backing the right horse? Guys, what do you think? Honestly, I really, I don't know what DC are doing anymore. <laughs> like, I don't understand anymore. <laughs> you know, they spent all this money doing the Zack Snyder Justice League. But now they're like, but we're going to do a new Superman. But it's going to be, I don't know. I honestly don't know anymore. <laughs> I'm really tired. <laughs> um. I mean, yeah, this is, I think lots of people have made this point of like the, the timing is a little suspect when they've been, um, you know, a lot of controversy over how they treated Ray Fisher, mm-hmm. you know, to go like, oh, look at this. We're doing a black Superman. You can never criticize us again <laughs> when it feels like, well, why don't you make the cyborg movie, mm-hmm. you know, that you said that you were going to make because you make you're making the Flash movie. That seems to still be happening by like I but this is the thing I just I don't understand what the game plan is because they're both trying to continue the already set up universe with with Flash and um, with Wonder Woman 3 with those characters and but now they're also trying to do these standalone films but it seems like they're trying to connect them I keep reading things that they some of these standalone films will end up connecting I've heard that the Superman's gonna be like an Elseworld. It like it's gonna like you know there's the Snyder. Yeah, we know that we know that Zack Snyder has basically established like this is the world that we're in. His kind of narrative, like who these characters are. We know that with Flash, it's gonna create this kind of paradox where it's gonna be multiverse because everyone's doing multiverse now. Um, so I can understand why maybe they would bring in a black Superman. Um, especially when they've got the Batman, which is obviously going to be an offshoot in a separate kind of world. I don't, I'm not opposed to there being a black Superman, but the idea that it's going to be, well, one, the timing, as you mentioned, I find it a bit convenient, um, that right when, you know, news stories have come out about Jeff Johns saying, you know, Superman can't have a black granddad, uh, which doesn't actually make sense, but there we go. Um, or, you know, the fact that, you know, Ray Fisher, I mean, the thing about, he's one thing he's maintained is like he just wants accountability he just wants an apology from the people um involved and he'll make a side like he's ready he's ready to go like he'll do a cyborg film he just wants to have be acknowledged in that situation but i suppose he's been uh dismissed and it continues to be they refuse to give that so now this kind of thrust on a a black with Ta-Nehisi coats and and then having all these like oh my god Shaka King with Kajina King J.G. Dillard like oh wow it just feels and then suddenly it's going to be Clark Kent it just it's all a bit like whoa what are you deflecting from <laughs> like what are you trying to like distract us with um you know I'm not I'm not as I don't know the DC comments as well as I know Marvel but as I'm fully aware that there are iterations of Black Superman 
Calvin Ellis uh, Valsod. So it's like you could create rather than do the same. I think it was Scott Mendelssohn said actually said like you know why not do you get more excited viewers and audiences will be more excited for a brand new character of color like a black character than they would be for the same character being done again and suddenly it's like you're changing the origin story like race swapping it just feels like let's bring something new and i you know i'm i'm kind of like if you don't i'm bored of as i think the problem with dc dc is its constant obsession with superman and Batman, its inability to like imagine a world where superheroes could exist without him, like it's just so boring how often it gets, you know, we talk about Spider-Man getting rebooted all the time, but how many Batman and Superman things do we need? Um, so I, I'm just I'm just kind of like, you would have done better if you'd announced a brand new character or iteration rather than just retreading on old territory, especially when you still, you kind of really messed around one of your highest profile black stars. Yeah, uh, I'm largely in agreement with you, uh, Hannah. Um, I'm excited about a black Superman because mainly because of really Tanahesi Coates writing it. Because I I've read his Marvel comics. He's done a lot of work on Captain America, and he's very good at marrying superheroics with the issues of the day. And I think when it comes to a black Superman, that's something that could be very, very powerful and very, very prescient uh, in a way that not many other superheroes can be. I don't understand why they're, why they're going with the Clark Kent iteration here. Um, especially if we're having all these Elseworlds things now, there's no need for this black Superman to be Clark Kent. You can have Calvinos, you can have Valsod, you can tell those untold on the big screen stories and have a bigger impact for it. Um, so I don't understand where they're going that that route. And DC have a lot of really cool black characters in their staple, which they haven't uh, given uh, you know, the big screen to yet. The fact that we haven't had a John Stewart Green Lantern film yet is completely crazy to me. Um, not least of which because you know the Justice League animated series that I love, I know Hannah, you love it as well. But it was thanks to that show that I grew up with a black Green Lantern. I know that's you know much different from many other people who love Green Lantern, but I knew about John Stewart long before I had ever heard the name Hal Jordan. And you know, that show made me fall in love with that iteration of the character. And it's crazy to me that in all this Green Lantern stuff that we've seen uh be announced that we've seen in the past, John Stewart has not got his day in the sun yet. So that's one. But there's static shock. There's steel, not 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 the Shaquille O'Neal one, an actually good steel. Uh, but there's so many characters that they can pick from. I don't understand why they have this. You know, you know Superman doesn't need to be Clark Kent all the time. One one of the things that Spider Verse did so well is having you know Spider Verse Spider Man. We had how many Spider Man films with Peter Parker before Spider Verse, oh. and then Spider Verse proved that Spider Man didn't need to be Peter Parker all the time. You have the same option when it comes to Superman. And I don't think people would want a black Peter Parker. Do you know what I mean? I think people, yeah. Miles Morales, what's so groundbreaking about that is that he was his own individual character. And, and I think that's what sold. Mm-hmm. It's, it just felt like, why why create the drama? You know, we know we live in a polarized time and we know there are fucking racists out there and sexists and misogynists mm-hmm. who basically hate the idea of any sort of 
race swapping or whatever. So it's like, well, why bother when you create the whole point of creating these new characters is because you realize, oh shit, we haven't got enough. So like, let's, and they're not like, they're not new. They've not been created last week. <laughs> They've got an established run. Yeah. I would also just add this though, in that DC can pip Marvel to the post in this way. A few weeks ago, when we were discussing the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, I mentioned that it would be a very good litmus test for how at the blockbuster level, we speak about race, especially as it pertains to heroism. And I don't think I don't think the Falcon and the Winter Soldier did as good a job of that as they could have, as as we've discussed. And DC can therefore set a new standard with a, a Black Superman film in terms of what we expect from films at the biggest blockbuster level, films which have that cultural cachet films which have all the eyes in the world on them in terms of how explicit can we be in speaking about race um and now you know i'm not not sure if we're going to get captain america before i'm not sure if we're going to get captain america before before black superman i doubt it but dc has an opportunity to raise that bar um which marvel have said not at a very high level with the falcon the winter soldier and with somebody like tanahesi coates in the writer's room on it um, I'm hopeful that you know DC can sort of raise that level in a really effective way, in a really powerful way. I think you'll be able to deal with race issues if better if the character is in Clark Kent because there's all these preconceived notions about who he is. I think you can do that with the mm-hmm. other characters. And again, I just don't think you're going to, you know, as someone is all about representation and diversity, I just don't see, you, you don't get that by just gender swapping or race swapping. There has to be more than just these tokenistic things you know, because there is an established reason why, like, he came into Kansas and, like, you're changing a whole origin story for a character. Why bother when there's one that already exists? Um, So, you know, I just, mm-hmm. I mean, DC have got a long way to go to really kind of, like, reform and rejig themselves. And to be honest, I think, you know, if they're going to try and make these movies, I mean, I trust Tarnasi Coates to do it. I think he's a great writer. If you're going to get someone to do it, you want him to do it. Um, But, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think, you know what, just, I kind of just feel like, just apologise to Ray Fisher and, and hopefully we can all move on. <laughs> Yeah, like there's the thing. It sounds like with the talent involved, it sounds like the movie is going to be great. But yeah, it just feels, it feels really weird and apologetic. And when these sort of movies get announced, I always just feel like, why didn't you make a black in the first place? <laughs> you know, you gave it to Henry Cavill, and you're gonna come in like, you know, why doesn't that character get to be part of your main, uh... your main? timeline or main franchise you know why does it have to be this like add-on thing you know well this is the thing like you know this is it'll be very interesting to see what they what happens after in flashpoint and after flashpoint because flashpoint is meant to you know in the comics it reset everything they had all these sort of elseworld stories going on and after flashpoint like there was a new sort of you no know, singular ish uh universe and with DC going off in so many different directions right now, Flashpoint could be the film to reset the DCEU in an interesting way. It'll be interesting to see what they pick and choose, what they choose to keep, what they choose to do away with after that. Mm-hmm. It's just crazy that the DCEU started in 2013, we're in 2021, and we're already talking about reset. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. mad. Um, yeah. That just shows how messy <laughs> and how without a yeah. plan... 
the DCEU have been, which is just Do crazy it, to right? Me. The yeah. first And time. also, give us a sequel to Birds of Prey, you motherfuckers, you cowards. I watched that again this week, and it's still, like, such a perfect film for me. I love it so much. Yeah. yeah. I would be I would be shocked that that's not coming. Uh, I think they're just waiting for the Suicide Squad to drop, which obviously features Harley in a big way. Um, but I would not be surprised if within months of that we get uh, Birds of Prey 2 announcement. Yeah. And on that exciting note, uh, that is it for this week's Fade to Black Pod, our 10th. We're in double digits. Amazing. Thanks for tuning in and please do enjoy another week of viewing via whatever medium is the most safest for you. Do subscribe, rate and leave us a review if you love the podcast and tweet us if you have something you'd love us to shout out next week. Use the hashtag Fade to Black Pod and follow us. I'm at Amon Woman. I'm at Clarice Lou. And I'm at Hannah Flint. And I've just remembered that by next week's podcast, when we do it, cinemas will be open. Yeah! So we can actually do like screen, stream, or skit, officially. (laughs) (laughs) Finally. (laughs) Finally. Uh, So until that glorious day, uh, farewell, film friends. It's time to fade to black.